Okay, ready? Take what you know and it's about a time when you get yourself in we are. I want to know something she's I think about everyone you need. I'm holding it. Things are moving real now. I have seen you wanting you. Hey. The tour ratio. Okay, though. The tour ratio. Okay, though. That might be the best question I've ever been asked. You're a phenomenal person. I mean, you legendary. I am a fan of you, my brother. What was it about Spike that created a sense? It's almost like a university. Like, there's several people in the Spike Lee family. Yeah who have come and been super successful on their own away from him. But what was he doing that gave you so much that you were able to leave and be, you know, become your own superstar? Um, I he believed in us. A, he believed in uh, you know, HBCU uh, graduates, you know, a bunch of us were from Hampton. Um, he also, you know, gave us like the confidence uh, when asked if who was your costume designer, he would never back down. It was Ruth Carter. Uh, it wasn't. There was never a hesitation. And with someone endorsing you on that level to like uh, studio executives, who I've had situations where there was a list, you know, a list of resumes, and mine kept being put at the bottom. I mean. Um, Charles Dutton, he told me a story how he kept moving my resume up to the top and every time the resumes would be uh, circled around and it'd come back to him, mine would be at the bottom and he would put it back up at the top. So, you know, Spike endorsed you in that way that made you feel like, okay, this person believes in me and I, I need to deliver. Ruth E. Carter is the best costume designer in the business and she's got two Oscars to prove it. She is the reason why the clothes in Black Panther look like that. She's the reason why the clothes in Do the Right Thing and Malcolm X and all these Spike Lee movies look like that. She is a genius on the sartorial tip, and it is so wonderful to talk to her again about the clothes of Black Panther and the Spike Lee movies and working in Hollywood and where she keeps her two Oscars, and how those Oscars have changed her career. Let's get into it. It's Ruth E. Carter on Touré Show. So your book, The Art of Ruth E. Carter, yeah. is ex- it's an extraordinary book. Oh, thanks. Because it's an extraordinary career. <laughs> and the first page that I opened up to was the page when they're going to do the battle to see who's going to be Black Panther. Yes, the and you can King's see, Ascension Challenge. Yeah, and you can see, you know, this moment, we saw all this color. Yes. But it was so thoughtfully and purposefully yes. delivered. It wasn't just, there's lots of color. like, yeah. it, it, And it was like the details that these people mm-hmm. making this film are mm-hmm. super like paying attention. It's so black and it's so detailed. Yeah. And it's so uh, let's just start talking about this. Cause there's so much going on mm-hmm. in this moment with all these other people. I mean, like we're seeing the whole of Wakanda here uh-huh, uh-huh. and we, I'm so, <laughs> I just, 
This is amazing. Well, the, one of the first things that Ryan Coogler said to me in our meetings was that this was the one time that we'll see Wakanda in all of their traditional garb. So mm-hmm. he said, go as far as you like with the traditional garb. We had organized um, Wakanda already with this uh, Wakandan Bible that Hannah Beekler uh, put together. So we knew what tribes we had. And then we, uh, Ryan Coogler was also very clear about the color palette. So he put together the idea of the river tribe would wear green. The border tribe would have this orange, the Zulu. You know, he put all of that together. And so following that direction and being told that this is the time, it's a feast for the eyes. This is the time where we'll bring all the traditional garb together at the Warrior Falls. So whereas in other parts of Wakanda, we were merging the technology with with modern fashion, with African fashion, um, and we weren't we were honoring tradition, but we were also showing a world that was leading in technology. So we right. didn't want it look like to look like a place that that hadn't moved forward. So right. tradition was respected and honored, but we were using technology to move it forward. Um, here at the Warrior Falls, all tradition. So you'll see that we were inspired by the Tuareg uh, when you see the merchant tribe. The merchants of Wakanda were inspired by the Tuareg. So you see the aubergine color. You see that they use the silver and they, you know, have the turbans. And they're, you know, she, the leader, the, 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 uh, the elder is there with her fierce warrior who is in traditional garb. And she's like, you know, we will not challenge today, you right, know. Right. So that went on through all the tribes. And I know when we were shooting it, Ryan was moving like full sections, you know, from one side to the next. And we built this um, this part of the of the mountain that had scaffolding in the back and stairwells in the back. But all of those people had to come down off of the rocks and move over to the other side. So he curated also after uh, giving the direction and, and we dressed all of these people. Um, he actually placed it. So wait, take me back to deciding what T'Challa mm. is going to look like. Because yeah. that's the first big... Yes, decision. well, you know, we are seeing the king in his kingdom. We are seeing King T'Challa moving around Wakanda. So it became more than just the panther suit because I had to believe that this black panther came from Africa and so there was there needed to be something about this suit that connected him. So we um we looked at the first black panther suit that was introduced in Captain America Civil War. Which you had nothing to do with. I had nothing to do with that. It was introduced at the end of that film. And we were making a new suit for the Black Panther one. Um, And we examined some of the the issues, you know, because it was the first time out the gate. So we always want to improve on it. And uh, there was a surface texture that I noticed, but we could take advantage of. And we made up a triangle 
which is like the sacred geometry of Africa. The triangle means the family, the mother, the father, the child. And also there was this veining that went throughout the suit that had uh, tribal markings. So I kind of felt like the triangle with these tribal markings together would feel like the Ankara fabrics that you see that have multiple shapes and geometrics that are combined together. And having this triangle as like a symbol of, you know, a family connected him also. And we called it the Okavango Triangle, and it connected him to Africa. So now what Ramonda, mm-hmm. his mother, yeah. Angela Bassett, is wearing mm. is this extraordinary. It, it gives crown, mm-hmm. but not in the traditional European no. vision of crown. Yes. So talk about what you... Yeah, so Queen Ramonda in the comics uh, wore the Ishikolo. That's the married, uh, South African married woman's hat. Um, she does, you see her in the Ishikolo, but she's wearing like yoga pants and she's barefoot, you know, which I like that Queen Ramonda too. But that's if you're like collecting comics and you know who she is and you can go on her journey. In this, we have, you know, finite two hours to tell this story. So in Black Panther 1, I really wanted her to have, you know, at the very start, a queen's attire. You know, she's ready for the Warrior Falls. You see her in this big dress. She has her Ishikolo. It's 3D printed. Um, and that was the other thing. I thought, you know, this is Wakanda. If they're leading in technology, she would have a, uh, a crown that was uh, perfectly round, like uh, not imperfect in any way. And the only way we could get to that was through computer technology. And so I went to an architect that was a professor at UCLA, and she had done some work with 3D printing for fashion. She'd worked with Iris Van Erpen, and she didn't know what I was calling her about. And I sat down and I worked with her and I said, this is the Ishikolo. It's woven. If we can take these li- this line work and we can put those algori- algorithms into the computer and print out the perfect crown for a queen. And she did it. And we had it printed in Belgium at the time because they had a 3D printer that was large enough to print it all as one piece. And uh, it's an incredible process. Why is she white? Is it white or off-white? It's kind of a pearl essence. We gave it a pearly pearl essence because I really wanted it to look like it was 3D printed. And there's a lot of things that we live around that are printed, you know, in a, in a computer, you know, developed in a computer and then printed in a 3D printing machine. And then they're like, they're painted, they're lacquered and... You know, they don't have that, uh, they just don't have the look of, you know, its infancy stage. And so I kept it in its, because the 3D printer prints it out in white. Yeah. And so then we just slightly added color to it. So, Long story made even longer. Yeah. No, I, I want to <laughs> I, I continue going through a lot of the choices you made on this. But before we get to that, did you feel, did you guys feel pressure while you're making the movie, did you have any sense of like, like if you knew the hysteria that would come before we saw it, right? Like I would think like, yeah. like we have set a high bar for ourselves mm-hmm. and like, you know, the whole community is going to come out and see this thing. And everyone came with like, you know, mm-hmm. like love and like wanting yes. to be loved on by this movie. And like, you know, it's iconic, mm-hmm. but like, 
did you feel pressure while you're making it of like we've set a high bar and we got to keep crushing it? Uh, for Black Panther 1, we were not proven. So I think that the pressure was to not repeat old habits of monolithic Africa, mm-hmm. of um, representation that was not was that looked colonized, that mm-hmm. we did the research and we did the work that we uh, redirected uh, standards of beauty. We brought in scarification, we brought in, um, beadwork and and neck rings that were considered beautiful. We brought in the Himba tribe that used the shea brother butter and clay soil mixed together and put it all over their skin, all in their hair. They used calfskins to create create uh, garments. So we wanted to redirect those uh, those images of beauty standards from what we were colonized to believe to this standard that is throughout Africa. It's interesting that you had to do a perspective shift to make sure we're talking about a non-colonized modern Africa because so much of what we receive is visions of a colonized Africa or— Yes, more than we even realize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, you know, it was really difficult. There were some compromises— we had to use we used the Lesotho blankets for the border tribe, and we painted vibranium on one side. You know vibranium, right? Yeah. Yeah, you know it doesn't exist, right? Of course, it's all, it's all made up. Yeah, of course. Okay, okay, just making sure. Wait, 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 do people think that this is a real thing? No, no. I just have to remind people, you know, okay. because people are so passionate about yeah. Wakanda. I'm like, listen, you can't get a ticket there. You really can't. <laughs> There's, a, you know, it's. But it it is. Like the Afrocentric dream. Of yeah. Life. Yeah. And I think that Ryan Coogler was a really good um, leader for us because he um, he felt like when he went to see Malcolm X with his dad, there was a family, sense of family in the theater where, you know, families came together and there was some excitement in the room and everyone was excited about the, 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 the film that was about Malcolm X, you know, and he grew up in Oakland, so you can imagine. And he created that same uh, vibe for people that were coming to see That's true. It, the Black it, Panther it, films. It, it, I mean, it, Black Panther was more of an event. Yeah, more of an event, but of Malcolm course. But Malcolm X was absolutely was, yeah, an event. that was an event, too. We were excited and waiting. Spike Lee is going to make a movie about Malcolm X. What? You know that's going to be good. <laughs> right? I'm like in the middle of uh, the desert at the pyramids watching an imam, you know, sing the morning prayer on a Spike Lee joint. I mean, how good is that? So you did that film, Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. It looked fantastic. Mm-hmm. He looked fantastic. Mm-hmm. Talk about what you did in terms of how is Denzel going to look, and it look it, it looks appropriate to the time mm-hmm. and yet not out of place. So yeah. how did you do that? Well, you know, I had to uh, break the script up. You know, everything starts with the script, obviously, and um, I had to break it up into quadrants and right. Different of parts, his, of, his parts of his life. Yeah. And I um, had a letter writing campaign that I started with the Department of Corrections in Massachusetts, where he was incarcerated. Right. Right. And I knew that he went in as one one man and he came out as another. So I really wanted to see his writings, and they um, they gave me a date, and I went there and I sat in a cubicle and they put his files in front of me and I I got all of his letters and his booking photos and all this stuff and I really wanted to see how he transitioned 
you know, and, and through his letter writing, I could see how his vocabulary increased. He was very much, very animate about being in a place where there was a good library. And so I just felt like through the research of knowing a person, you can make decisions about what they would wear, even if there's no photograph of them. You kind of know. To, to explain that to me, how you used, because clearly you see the world differently than I do, than most people <laughs> do, right? Like you sort of funnel things through clothes and fashion, yeah. right? Like yeah. You kind of think yeah, in clothes, I make, yeah, think in, yeah, I think in character, right? What's this person's uh, life like? What's their character like? What have, what do, where do they come from and what are they ready for? So I just, uh, you know, just imagine the world, uh, you know, imagine the world as it was or as how it could be or, you know, just imagine how the color, how the colors work together in our world or how the textures work together in our world or. So when you get to Harlem Malcolm. Yes. He looks sharp as a tack. Yeah. And he looks young and yeah. fit and on top of the world. Mm -hmm. And like, how, how, what did you want to do there? Well, you know, I had gone to the Schomburg Center for Research. Um, I had uh, looked through when Corvus was the Bettman Gallery, and I had looked at so many, you know, wonderful images that were captured by the photographers of the time, Teeny Harris, and um, I just wanted to bring Harlem to life in the 1940s. You know, it was building a world that um, I felt very much a connection to. And to place an iconic, uh, an iconic person in that world, you have to know the world first, and then you know what what they're what they are looking like within that world. Like, should they, you know, immerse and be a part of it? Like, I'm, one of my favorite scenes is with Delroy Lindo and and Malcolm X, and they're at the train station, and he's hustling, and he's trying to show them how to, you know, how to do the numbers, and Denzel has on, like, a, a bebop cap, and uh, Delroy has on a Hamburg, and you can see, like, the relationship between the two, you know, it's like the big hustler is teaching the young hustler, yeah. and, and, and then Denzel carries it with his acting, and, and that happened... Over and over again. I mean, when he when he um, comes out of prison and he meets Elijah Muhammad for the first time, I gave Denzel this you know old saggy suit that was a little too big, and when you see Denzel in that scene, you know uh, performing and you know he's in front of his his mentor, you know someone he studied these years that he was incarcerated and now he's meeting him face to face. It's incredible to see the the acting, and I love that the costume is supporting, you know, his posture and mm -hmm. his his. So wait, so you said when you were making the first Black Panther, mm. we were unproven. We were unproven. But when you go to make the second one, now you're feeling pressure because we you're coming off overproven, the right? You're <laughs> you're coming off the phenomenon. The yes. world is waiting. Yes. You feeling pressure now? Well, we feel pressure that now I'm trying to temper everyone. On the first one, we had no other uh, um, model to go by uh, besides like the Lion King or Coming to America. So I'm walking around saying this is not Coming to America, people. You know, like that was a good movie, but this is going to be different and so i'm guiding and you know was, controlling like, the art it was like no vision of africa we had ever seen yeah yeah and then now wakanda forever everyone has seen black panther one this you know the embracing of it um is incredible now everyone 
feels to me that they're over ready for it. And I'm like, hey, we're going to show another part of Wakanda this time, the River Province, which has to be curated so that it seamlessly connects with the first one. We're not just going to pile everything on from the first one and put it in the River Province. And then we had the Tolokaneels who were inspired by the Mayan culture, which, you know, when you start with Wakanda and you feel like you've had some African studies in your life, you're not at point A, you're maybe at, you know, elemental P uh, carrying on like the aesthetic or the new aesthetic. But with uh, the Mayan culture, we're like under zero. We are very much infants in the learning about this culture uh, that was also erased in many ways. Yeah. So I had to rely on Dresden Kodaks and figurines and and historians to learn, like, in record time what this culture would look like. And they are also fictitious. So they go underwater. They live underwater. And what parts of the underwater world influence their costume? So we did the lionfish with Namora and then... Uh, Namor had the beautiful neck piece that represented the double-headed serpent. And so there was so much uh, iconography there that, um, you know, we had to make sure we had it right. So, yeah, you felt a lot of pressure. Yeah, a lot of pressure. To answer your question was a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. Yeah, yeah, enormous amount of pressure. I mean, I would imagine the, the feeling of like, this time, the world is watching over your shoulder yeah. and you're making decisions that you could hear. Some people are like, yes, and some people are like, no. And no. you're like, get out of my head and let me just make a decision. Uh, no, stay in my head and help me make a decision, uh, the right decision. <laughs> I mean, we had to change. Uh, Namor has a big uh, headdress that he wears underwater and it represents the feathered serpent. And uh, we made it off of a design that actually represented a, a time that we were not representing in the film. Long mm-hmm. story short, we had to make it over again, like, in, you know, in a week. Mm. So the whole face of the serpent changed from being one, one era to another. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick... Let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, 
resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. So wait, let's go back to the first one. Okay. Killmonger is one of the great villains of yes. film history. Probably yes. because you can agree with him. You can yes, believe in he's him. he's part of the Lost Tribe. Yeah, like mm-hmm. he, I mean, except for wanting to unalive a lot of people. Right. He's right. <laughs> right? Like he's making an excellent point. We should yes. be helping. So, but, but you do... You do constantly wink at us like, he's the villain. He's the villain. So how do you sartorially, what are you doing sartorially to say he's a villain, but but you can still like him? Yeah, we're not giving him anything that makes him feel like he's an outsider. You know, when we are introduced to him, he's wearing a Kevlar vest. It's got some kente uh, straps on it. He's got, uh, you know, he's got the tactical pants. You can see he's ex-military. And, uh, you know, it's all in the delivery of, you know, these incredible actors, too. Um, When we see him take over, he's, you know, he's burying his chest with all of the scars. And, and, uh, you know, we kept him very, very simple. It was more the message and the writing than it was actually, you know, making him look like a villain. He did mm. not. And, you know, in part, I do have to go back to Ryan Coogler. He's just such a great storyteller and that he guides you. And whenever you have a, a question about a, a garment that you might be in the throes of making, he goes, let me see it. Let me help you. And it's, you know, you have to feel safe in a in a creative space like this. You have to be sa- feel safe that you may not make everything perfect, that you do have an ally who's going to you know, help you groom it, and, and and that's right. You want it safe is he listens to you, he guides no you. No judgment. You, you don't feel like you're like, oh, I'm going to, am I going to keep my job if I, you know, <laughs> like all that's not there. You are a film family. You have to be able to try yeah. and fail yes. to find the right answer without like, oh, you made. Yeah. Like, what were you thinking? <laughs> I've had a few of those. <laughs> well, did you get that kind of safety from our friend Spike, or is he a little more oh, yeah. aggressive? No, no, no. But he's tough. Certainly, he's tough. Yeah, but, he but loves I was you guys. with oh god, I was Spike with Spike family. for twenty five years. Yeah. I mean, he always used to say, "Ruth, what are your ideals? I got to see your ideals." And I was what does like, that mean? "I don't ideas." He used to yeah. always say, "Ideals, I got to see your ideals." I was like, "Okay, oh. okay, let me get my folders and you know sit down and sit down with you." You know, definitely. I fortunately was groomed at 40 Acres and a Mule, and it was a safe space. I mean, it was about representation. It was about culture. And I walked into the film industry with that 
you know, with that in my backpack. And Do the right uh, thing is early in your career. Yeah. And it looks extraordinary. Still. Talk about some of the sartorial decisions you made there. Well, you know, we were st- independent film. There was a lot going on in New York, you know. Yeah. Uh, Tawana Brawley and Mike Tyson. And uh, Eleanor Bumpers. Eleanor Bumpers. What was it? What was Benson it? Hurst. Benson Hurst. Yes. Crown Heights. Crown Heights. You know, it was whew. And I think Spike wanted to make a protest film. And um, we had to do it at a certain a budget. So Nike was a big partner and uh, gave a lot of product. And I had all this saturated color from from Nike, all these team colors, and um, I I balanced it out with the Ankara fabrics, and we made a lot of shorts and midriff tops and, you know, lots of things, but it also created the look of the film as being a very uh, stylized, yep. and it works. It was out of necessity, um, it, but it worked, and when you look down the block, you saw a different Brooklyn, even though... It might have been a little more grayed over. It still was as vibrant in its spirit and in its cultural uh, melting pot. You know, you had the Jamaican patties on the corner. You had the Korean grocer. You had the cornerman. It was very colorful. We just made it visually colorful. It's very visually colorful, and it feels—I mean, I live in Fort Greene. Yeah. Which is where— it was shot, I It was believe. shot in Bed-Stuy, but, uh, up on like uh, more towards Gates and Grand. Okay. Well, up but that way. I think we think of it as having happened in Fort Greene. You right? think of it because Spike used to live in Fort Greene. And Green. he lived there, yeah. right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But Fort Greene was kind of, you know, it was kind of yuppie. <laughs> it was yuppie? <laughs> it was kind of buppy. Definitely buppy. Yeah. Definitely buppy. But Fort Greene has, has all three classes. Yes, it li- does. Living within a short distance. Yes. Um, uh, but uh, it looks authentic. Uh-huh. I, I live in that neighborhood, and uh-huh. I feel like that mm-hmm. represents us. Us, yeah. You think Senior Love Daddy, you uh. know, Sam on the radio. Yeah. We love radio. It's just, I mean, it's in the National um, Library of Congress, and it still holds up. I mean, college students tell me all the time that they watch Do the Right Thing. Oh, yeah. about it. The, the door melange mm. really leap off the screen. And just the look creates the seriousness, mm-hmm. the sense of purpose. Mm-hmm. This is like what? What was your what was your guiding philosophy there? Well, uh, Ryan Coogler uh, again said, "I want the women to be taken seriously in a uniform. I I don't want them in cheerleader sk- skirts and triangle tops. You know, I want them to have a serious uniform." And then. Um, everyone wanted to see what the uh, Dora Milaje design was going to be. There was a lot of entries. Uh, Anthony Francisco was the one who did the drawing. And then once it came to me, I, I needed it to connect also with Africa. And you can actually travel around the whole continent on that costume. It has beadwork that's inspired by the Turkana down the front. It has the panther buckle uh, honoring their king. It has the neck rings from the Indibele tribe, South Africa. It has scarification on the bodysuit. It has a leather harness that travels around the body with a back skirt that's leather like the like the like the 
Oh, God, I'm just, like, drawing a blank. But um, like the many tribes that used the calfskins and they'd stretch the edges and ruffle the edges. And, and Ryan also wanted them to be heard before they were saw before we saw them. So when we made it, we put little rings on the back skirt. So as the women are walking into tribal council, you hear this little jingling coming, and you know it's the Dora Milaje. So all of that, including the color, like I, I needed to bring up the color to more of a Maasai red so that when you see them, they feel really, really strong. And the, the color is also very strong and saturated and powerful. So, um, uh, so did you travel? Uh, whose idea was it for them to be bald? Uh, Ryan, they used to have, we used to have this thing where we were going to have ranking. And the ranking was the less hair you had on your head, the higher the rank was. So Okoye was always going to be bald, but some of the other Dora would have, you know, sculpted uh, 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 haircuts, you know, similar to like Senegalese wrestlers that have all of the hair sculpted cuts. And um, we had to tile them. So we were, we only could make, like, I don't think there, at most there were 20, but we needed them to feel like an army. And so in tiling them, they needed to all be more uniform, and we couldn't do all the different hairstyles. So did you just travel around Africa as research for this film? If I did that, I would still be there researching uh, because— uh, you know, most of the people, they move out of the country in Africa and they're living in the city, you know. And so I had to rely on like research books and okay. picture collections. And I did have shoppers throughout Africa, though. I had shoppers that went to the Maasai women and bought. And I wanted to see Hemba's when a tribe I couldn't think of. I wanted to see like the real Hemba headpieces that they wear and the wigs. And I wanted to just really understand the color palettes, you know, not from a... Uh, a picture. I really wanted to see it in my hands. And so they traveled. I had, you know, um, a Ghanaian uh, shopper. I had a South African shopper. And they they traveled around and collected things, uh, original antiques for me and sent them to me in Atlanta. And I used them as my guide. Are those the two places that most inspire you um, for Black Panther, Ghana, and South Africa, or are there others? Oh, it's the, who it's everywhere. It's East Africa, the Himba, it's uh, the Tuareg, the Mali, it's the Dogon. I mean, the Jabari tribe was inspired by the Dogon, and they do this beautiful carving, uh, wood carving. They are, were one of the first astronomers, and yep. they have this celebration of the Saltis where they wear these incredible headpieces that just like tower into the sky and it's all carved. So the Jabari tribe, which also uh, uses wood as their armor, uh, was a good connection um, to make with the Dogon. And so a lot of the wood carving that we used as the clay carving, it's actually, it's a whole process to making this stuff, but the clay carving was, was inspired by the Dogon. What was it about Spike that created a sense? It's almost like a university. Like there's several people in the Spike Lee family yeah. who have come and been super successful on their own away from him. Mm. But what was he doing that gave you so much mm. that you were able to leave and be, you know, become your own superstar? Um, I he believed in us. A he believed in uh, you know HBCU uh, graduates. You know, a bunch of us were from Hampton. 
Um, he also, you know, gave us like the confidence uh, when asked if who was your costume designer, he would never back down. It was Ruth Carter. Uh, it wasn't there was never a hesitation. And with someone endorsing you on that level to like uh, studio executives who I've had situations where there was a list, you know, a list of resumes and mine kept being put at the bottom. I mean, um, Charles Dutton, he told me a story how he kept moving my resume up to the top. And every time the resumes would be uh, circled around and, and come back to him, mine would be at the bottom and he would put it back up at the top. So, you know, Spike endorsed you in that way that made you feel like, okay, this person believes in me and I I need to deliver. And he made a lot of films. Yeah, and he did every year. Every year for 14 years, I bounced back and forth between L.A. and, and New York. And I knew when I got back to New York, I couldn't talk to Spike about I'm going to get you sucker. He didn't want to hear about he didn't want to hear about I'm going to get you sucker and the over gold. And then I even made T-shirts that said I'm going to get you sucker that were in like gold lame and I would wear them and he would like, ah, you know. What? what, what? <laughs> I don't know. I just think that there was a Spike Lee joint and then there was the Robert Townsend comedies. I feel like Mo Better Blues and and uh, the Five Heartbeats are very different. Sure. You know, they're very different filmmakers and um you know, I think back then we were emerging filmmakers. Everybody wanted to be seen. There was no social media. So there probably was a little rivalry. I mean, Spike was better than anyone at getting attention for himself and his films. Oh, yeah. I think he was like the first one to – a maverick, basically, you know, the first two. Um, and maybe not to the point of on your phone, but he certainly was an independent filmmaker who was financing – you know his own stuff, and 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 making everyone aware from the Mars Blackman Nike commercials yes. to he goes to Cannes and he says we were robbed and that yeah I don't know who won oh, I remember <laughs> but we remember Spike and nobody did that nobody and then did that. and that became this thing rally well we have to support him because he's not being supported by the man or being yeah. recognized by the man like that was even better than winning yeah 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 for sure. Um, Mo Better Blues is one of my favorite mm. Spike films and it is just it, even I think the first half because it's so I mean I love the whole film but it's so visually beautiful before Denzel gets beaten up mm-hmm. <laughs> and all mm-hmm. that but it's so visually beautiful and I think as a young man I was like oh I want to live in a world that looks like that yes yeah we were uh we were inspired by the jazz greats mm-hmm. you know all the jazz greats Thelonious Monk Lester Young Miles, uh we Miles Davis yeah we were um also studying a lot of the style of the 40s and the 50s of uh, jazz musicians and um and that you know did uh become like the basis of the look uh, it was modern, so I was here in New York beating the streets. You know, I, I did my time in New York, and uh, going to the going to the showrooms. We used this guy who was down on Varick Street named Sabato Russo. He was an Italian designer. He did beautiful pumpkins and beautiful greens and beautiful yellows. We used uh, Fezza. We used uh, Kinzo. We were using color. And I think it was innovative for a lot of films that were that were kind of gray and monochromatic. But we, you know, we were not afraid to use color because it looked great on brown skin. Yeah. And uh, so you see, you know, uh, Denzel on the Brooklyn Bridge 
practicing his trumpet, but he's in that long pumpkin Sabato Russo coat. It's fabulous. Mm, mm. I mean, there's a story about a jazz giant that uh, used to go on the Williamsburg Bridge because he was disturbing the neighbors if he practiced his trumpet right there in his apartment. So he'd go to the middle of the bridge and, and, and play. A lot of actors say... They're not really in the character till they get in the clothes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you're a really critical part of helping the people understand where we all are going, mm-hmm. right? Before we even get there, mm-hmm. right? Like, is, mm-hmm. so you're, I mean, you you keep nodding. The actors are so great, but the actors need you to help them mm-hmm. visualize the character. Yeah, well, I learned that through um, fitting so many great actors, Jeffrey Wright, Sam Jackson, you know, uh, Mahershala Ali. Um, and they say, Mahershala said uh, his first fitting is his first rehearsal. And um, and Jeffrey Wright, I remember in Shaft, you know, he really needed to feel that the clothes were right. Not only the look was right, that uh, the way that they wore on his body felt right. And, you know, those experiences kind of shape you and understanding the actor's journey because they are the ones in front of the camera. They are the ones performing. They are the ones that are that are transforming into someone else. And I'm here to support that mm. and mm. tell the story visually. Of course. Of course. Um, where are your Oscars? You have two, right? Yeah. <laughs> Where are they? Well, I brought them recently. Um, I had them shipped from my house. That were They were in the living room. I had them shipped to me in Atlanta so that I could bring them to the commencement speech I just gave at my HBCU. Oh, so cool. I, uh, I, I got up and I said hello, and then I said, you know, here's the first one, boom, and now here is the second one, bam. <laughs> <laughs> so they're in the living room. Yeah. Behind glass? No, they're on a shelf because every one of my friends wants to take a picture with them. <laughs> so they're just so freestyling on a shelf in my living Does room. it change your career? Well, uh, yeah, it does. You know, people are proud. They recognize you. Your name becomes something that uh, people want to associate with. Uh, getting financing for their next film, or the, when they when they think of great costumes, they want to associate you with, uh, you know, their their idea for great costumes. Um, and it changes in that you become. I I always felt like I was doing this. I was I was doing superheroes, you know, with Malcolm X and Tina Turner. I was dedicated to this work for a very long time, you know. So I don't feel like. I have changed or my process has changed. I feel like it's the people who are around me and the way they see me now has changed a little bit. And mm-hmm. I've become more of a professional. I'm more of an expert and more of a winner. So I appreciate that. I mean, your vision has been validated. Yeah. So surely she, I mean, it. do you notice it? Like now when she says, I think we should do this, people are like, you know what? Listen to her. Because she got two Oscars. She made amazing <laughs> films where before they might have been like, I don't know, Ruth. Well, I still love the collaboration. I don't want to be on my own island. And I think that's kind of what happens. You know, they go like, listen to her. What is? Your, what do you think? What do you think? We should, which direction should we go in? I'm like, let's let's talk about it. What collectively are we doing here? What kind of movie are we making? Let's let's like examine this. I, l- I love when people have ideas or they say, no, that's not what I'm 
looking for. I'm looking for this. I want to get inside your head. I want to understand what the art is that we're creating. And then I can flourish in that. You know, if I'm the only one, it's too wide open. It's not like it's not having a roadmap. It's not really being immersed in a great idea about direction and and collaboration yes collaboration it's a movie a hundred people yes yes and that's the part that i love the most about it do different do different people call now to ask hey work on my movie we're like all kinds of people not even different like people i've known i was like i didn't know you was writing you got me put me down put me down yeah put my name down you know because i know when my until my agent calls me it's not real so i'm open but you work all the time. Yeah, I guess are you, I do. Are you, are you at capacity for the amount of jobs you could have? What's that mean? <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, I, I remember I, I spoke to Amy Sherald, mm-hmm. and she was like, I have a waiting list that is longer than my life. Oh, wow. So I, I cannot. And so it was like something major had happened. It was like, did that change your career? She's like, no, I'm already at capacity forever. And Jeez. I imagine, so I don't know if you're like, no I, way. I have enough bandwidth to do, say, four films a year, and I am already booked for. I don't believe that there's a green light for a lot of things. You know, I'm on their list, but I don't, it's not real, like I said. Until How my many films could me. you do a year? Well, when I first started, I was doing like 2.5 every year. I would do a film with Spike. I would do a film with Robert Townsend or Keenan Ivory Wayans or John Singleton. And then I would go back and forth. And then I could start like another film towards the end of the year. So uh, for about 12 years, I was doing two films, two and a half films a year. I mean, I remember during the recession in 20, 2007, I did like four independent films in one year. And um, that was the uh, uh, Black Dynamite, Frankie and Alice. I mean, they were just like, I did this one with Austin Kutcher uh, called, I forgot the name of it. <laughs> Sorry. But it was all like these little in and out things. Do you charge more since you've won two Oscars? Does the price go up? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Something's got to change. That's the best thing I think. Are you getting recognized for your talent by the entire community? Because the majority, from what I see, the majority of what you're doing is black cinema. And we love that. And we need that. We need that. And I have no problem with that. Um, but but our, that's uh, only 12 films. I've done 60. Right. But I mean, so, are, are, are other people, are white people calling you and be like, yes, you're clearly amazing. I like, did two seasons of Yellowstone. I did the first two seasons of Yellowstone. I did the Cowboys. And I learned Kevin a lot Costner. about Cowboys. I love Te- Kevin Costner and Taylor Sheridan. You know, the, the storytelling is my thing. And then that doesn't have a color. A lot of times it's, you know, it's interchangeable, right? So uh, when Taylor Sheridan said, you know, hey, the Cowboys today, they like hip hop, you know, so come on. I was like, hey, that's a concept. I mean, I know you could do anything, right? And I know I've been in that position where they're like, you're great on the black stuff. Yeah. Can you? I'm like, of course I can do. And I never thought I was great at the black stuff. I mean, I shied away from those ensemble films that, you know, like, you know, where everybody was there looking very modern. But you've dressed But I'm a everybody in all the great movies we've Yeah, loved. but I've done like biopics, Tina Turner yeah. and Malcolm X. And yeah. You don't see me doing like the best man. 
So you don't, no disrespect to the black no best, man. No, no, my, man, man, my but, mentee did the best but man. But you don't want to do the best Danielle man Hollowell. because why? Because I, I don't think I can do all of that kind of modern um, clothing that's very contemporary and I think has a more difficult time telling the story because there's a lot more focus on how I look. Like, you know, I'm the one who throws you a pair of flip-flops and say that's perfect for the scene. And that person might look at those flip-flops and say, I am wearing these Manolo Blahniks. So for me, I have to start with story um, because that's why I'm there. I can't just go shopping for you. Not and a I'm not no no I'm not a stylist. There you go. Story. There you go. I'm not here to it. make you look yeah, good. I'm I can here. make the whole film if you want me to. You know, I can you build like it the, from scratch. You like the past or the future. Yeah, I like it all. As but but you're saying but the present contemporary is just a tool. It's a tool. I'm I'm still looking for story. I'm still taking that John Varvedos uh, uh top and I'm overdying it. Because, you know, I need a color that immerses into the story well. And this has the right fit, but it's just not the right color for me. So, Or I'm, I'm putting a hole in something because it needs to tell that story of having been torn. So, so are you negotiating with the actors as well? Because obviously <laughs> you're collaborating with the, the director. Yeah, he knows. They know. She knows. But the the actors are saying, no, I'm not I'm doing that. I'm hoping that when I do it, the actor goes, this is perfect. Right. But they don't always say that. I don't have that many times that they don't. Okay. Yeah. I actually involve them. Sometimes I will prepare them. I have a relationship with the actors that I work with. And if I can't get a relationship going, I try to understand what you need and what you want. And I deliver it with that intent. And I am going to you. If you are taking a break and going to craft service for a cup of coffee or something, I might join you there and say, hey, I, I overdyed that shirt. Don't be shocked because it's the perfect blue. Wait till you see it. And then they might get it delivered in their trailer. They know they've been fit in it and it's perfect, but now it might have changed the hue a bit. And um, I don't get too much pushback. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive. 
T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Is there something that you wanted to do that people were like, that's too far? But like in 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 your perfect world, this that person would have been wearing that. That would have looked like that, but it was too much. Mm. I remember Forrest Whitaker in Jason's lyric. He plays his Vietnam vet, and uh, I overdyed something for him to wear a shirt, and it was the same exact color as the wall. I mean, it couldn't be the more exact. And I panicked, and he he sat in the scene, and he was having this illusion. You know, he was having this this difficult time. He was having this spaced out, like, you know, thoughts. And it totally worked emotionally for the scene. So I'm always willing to throw something up against the wall and see if it sticks. I'm always willing to take a risk and, you know, get the actor to join me in taking the risk. How how does someone become like you? The, the girl or boy who's listening and is like, I want to be like Ruth Carter someday. Mm. What what is what is a a path or what are the sort of things that that person should do over the next 10, 20 years yeah. so that they can move in your direction? I always think that maybe education is the key. I was um, I was passionate at Hampton about being a costume designer, even though there was no curriculum. So this was the dream from college, mm-hmm. from high school, uh, from college. It started in college. Yes. Wow. Yes. What did you, I'm sorry, what did you see in the world of costume design as a 19, 20, 21-year-old person that made you say, that, that's for me? Um, that I was an artistic, precocious kid. I had two brothers who were fine artists. I spent a lot of time in my room. I had was youngest of eight. So youngest of eight. Youngest of eight. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And huge family. Huge family. Um, and I saw that costume was design was a way of uh, immersing art and storytelling and textiles. I was also um, introduced to textiles as a young kid with a sewing machine and repurposing before it was called that. Upside uh, yeah, yeah, opening up my pants and making skirts out of them and stuff. And so those worlds came together when I was introduced to costume design and um, I understood that I could go on a journey with all of the characters. I could do a character arc for each one of the characters and see how their interconnectivity was as as uh, those relationships came together. And how could I visually show that? So I was like given like a learning lab at Hampton. I was the only one who was actually doing costume design. So I did all the plays, everything they produced while I was there, I was a costume designer. So I got to see how relationships and textures were worked on stage. 
Mm. And um, I just carry that passion on mm. from there. Mm. So how does a younger person oh, yeah, wants that's to be right. you? Get that's your question. You. Yeah. So I want to say that, you know, learning is uh, the first step uh, that, you know, you can't be a stylish person and think you know what it takes that, you know, even though people may uh, applaud you for having artistic abilities, you still have to learn this as a craft. You have to learn color theory. You have to learn how the refraction of light changes color because uh, garments in a scene become a part of the composition of the scene, and in some cases they are the light in the scene. If the scene is lit very dark and you have a beautiful green shirt on someone, that becomes the light that we see. So you have to understand like relationships between film and digital and uh, and composition of the set. You really do need to study that. So, and there's so many um, programs today and schools that teach costume design. You're going to get a base layer. And, and, and as an artist, I'm not um, advocating that anyone... Um, sort of patent them, themselves after me or anybody else. I think that it is an art form, and as you're learning, you should experience um, the world of costume design and understand artistically what you can bring to it because we all bring something. We all bring something. You're not going to bring the same thing Ruth Carter brought. You're yeah. going to bring your own ideas, and, your, and they'll be, you know, as exciting or more exciting. Just to conceptualize what it is. You're not a stylist. Right. But that's part of it. Yeah, it is. You're you're a you're a filmmaker and a storyteller and, and a researcher mm-hmm. and right, you're a visionary, but mm-hmm. like what words would you use mm-hmm. to fully explain like what all that a costume designer is doing? Um I think that the costume designer is similar to an art director of mm-hmm. uh, garments and and uh, I do uh, bring on people who are really good stylists, um, who are also costume designers, but sometimes they work as stylists because I need to be able to communicate an idea and they can tell me, like, there are all these anachronisms that happen when we are building this entertainment medium, right? So they will bring me all kinds of things that are in fashion or in vogue and I have to evaluate them as uh, how they immerse into this world if they're if they're able to, and um, and so as I define this person that I am, uh, it is really bringing the best of the processes together in costume design, be it it styling, be it it manufacturing, being it painting and dyeing and aging. I'm the person who takes the vision of the story, of the writer's story, of the director's vision, and I um, collaborate with my own set of artisans to create an image of a costume. Um, ask everybody who comes on the show, what does being black mean to you? in relation to the work. Mm. And um, you have repeatedly been part of showing us what 
being black can look like. Mm. Um, but what does it mean to you? Well, it means um, being black means actually identifying uh, myself with, um, you know, my people. Um, we as African-Americans may not know from which we hail as a as a people from Africa. Um, but what it means is that we do have a journey and I embrace the journey of my people as a part of myself. So whether it's um, whether it's reconstruction and the building of Wall Street um, and the contributions that people made to be independent or it's uh, seeing migration of African Americans across the the diaspora from the uh, from the deep south to the north, and sometimes from the north back down to the south. Mm-hmm. You know, back and forth. Being black to me means understanding that journey and my part in it, and whether my part is from an ancestral point of view mm-hmm. or from a firsthand point of view from my own family. That's what being black means yeah. to me. You, you just said um, that the journey, our collective journey, yeah. is part of you. Yes. And like, yeah, I absolutely feel that. Yeah. 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 I mean, we are here because of. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And it, it is tangible for us as far as the history, as far as the specific ancestors mm-hmm. and, and the general ancestors. And we would not have these opportunities if... Sydney Poitier and and this one and Dr. King yes, and whatever and, and Fannie Lou Hamer had not done yes. the things that they did right. and and I mean I feel like we can touch the people we can see the people who, we whose shoulders we are standing on we are totally totally a part of that that uh, those triumphs and that journey and those you know yeah is there what are, what is next for you. Um, right now, I feel like, uh, you know, because this industry takes so much of your life away from you, you know, and it's a good taken away. You know, you are still taken on a journey and you're still being very much a part of uh, a tribe or a family. You know, your film family is still a part of your family. So and so right at this moment with the actors on strike, I'm taking this opportunity to uh, Wusa to, uh, you know, connect to, you know, a lot of things that I like to do and that's painting and writing and, and promoting the book and things like that. But professionally I'm working on blade. Okay. How's that? It's amazing. That's all I could say. <laughs> Tell me something about the look. <laughs> Tell me something. I can't. Are, are you working on black Panther three? Um, I don't even know if they've written a Black Panther 3. I don't know what's going on. I don't really try to anticipate anything. Honestly, if I, you know, I, I did my work on 1 and 2 and and I'm so happy with the work that we produced together. 3 is a whole nother is a whole nother thing. What's going to happen, who knows. Whether I'm on it or not, who knows. I don't try to make those assumptions. I just live my life. Of course you'll be on it. <laughs> your your mouth to somebody's ears. To Ryan Coogler's ears. Yeah. <laughs> um, what is your superpower? What is the thing you do better than other people that's led to your oh, success? jeez. I don't think I do anything better. I think I do it my way. I've always been a person who does things my way. 
But what I pride myself in is that I give the actors room to breathe in the fitting rooms. And it's a very specific place and time for us to see eye to eye and to have a, a moment of, you know, letting, letting the ancestors in, letting the character come alive. And sometimes I have done so much research. I have looked at so many images. I can kind of see you in this time. I can kind of put you in this place already. And I'm just waiting for you to give me more than what I'm already envisioning for you. And then we go on that journey together. And that's the part that I really love. Thanks so much for a great interview. And thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality and maybe this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jennifer Brown. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington and Nick Carp. Our booker is Claudia Jean and we're distributed by DCP Entertainment and we will be back on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. <laughs>